Hi, veterinarians and veterinary technicians. Before I get started on the podcast, I just want to let you know that life coaching will change your life. If you want to learn more about it, go to my website, juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com, and there you will find a place to sign up for free coaching. I also have my Wednesday Weekly Words, my blog, and this podcast. So if you're thinking about getting into life coaching, check me out. You can send me an email also at jacapeldvm at gmail.com. Let's get into the podcast. This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 125. Hi, veterinary friends. It's the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Welcome back. And today I have a guest that I had on the podcast a little while ago, and it was so much fun. I begged her to come back and she agreed. It's Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones, and she is in Australia. So she's in the PM, I'm in the early morning AM, and uh, we were able to get together to record a podcast for you. She is the founder and CEO of um, mm, Unleashed, Unleashed Coaching and Consulting. I got it. It, it, my brain is a little slow, but I got it. Unleashed <laughs> coaching and consulting. I had to make sure I got the words in the right order. Thank you so much for being here, Jessica. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you today. It was it was such a good conversation the last time. And when we stopped, I had so many more questions about your <laughs> career. So hopefully some of these things will come up while we're talking and I'll, I'll learn more about your interesting and exciting career that you've had. Um, yeah, so, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So we kind of thought that we might start out speaking a little bit about imposter syndrome in our profession, because I, in my coaching business, I hear a lot of those kind of struggles with people that are working as veterinarians, whether they're in a hospital setting or um, in any kind of setting. And, and Jessica has experience in animal welfare and shelter medicine. And so um, those veterinarians struggle with these things as well. So we thought we'd start out with that and then kind of see where it goes. So would you like to say a little bit about your take on imposter syndrome, Jessica? And Absolutely. I guess, um, you know, there's, there's no surprise to anybody that it's fairly rampant in our profession. I think, um, you know, the just the sheer personality of the stereotype of veterinarians coming out at the moment where type A, we love to succeed, we, we want to be great at things, we want to do an excellent job. Um, and so our personalities sort of set us up and then we go into a, pressure, a profession in which it's often not very feasible to do a perfect job, um, whether that's Not because all, of client right? constraints or, you know, costs or time or just because, you know, you've got so many balls up in the air that, you know, you you need to find ways of doing a pretty good job. Um, but there are very rare occasions where you actually get to go, yes, I ticked every single box and that was perfect. And I can't think of a yeah, thing I would days, have Some days you're a super success and a epic failure at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, I just think that 
it's one of those things that the combination of our personalities and our profession do really set us up to feel a lot of um, guilt and, you know, that sort of definition around imposter syndrome when they first they first sort of started talking about it. They they really ref- were referring to women, but it doesn't only apply to women. They've very much, um, you know, broadened the scope of what imposter syndrome looks like now. Um, but and really, it encompasses anybody who worries that they aren't up to scratch and that people are going to work that out and that, you know, nobody can see that they're a fraud and just any minute now they're going to be discovered for the fact that they have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, how often do we sit there going, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm bluffing it because this owner needs me to be confident. They need me to sound like I know what I'm talking about. And so I do. security to think that Mm -hmm. you're in control when in your brain you're thinking, I don't, I don't have this under control at all. Yeah. And I remember being a new grad and I used to do the fairly cliched trick of, I would, you know, go through the consult, have absolutely no idea what was wrong with their pet. And then use some totally silly excuse like, oh, I've just left my stethoscope out the back. And then I'm hurriedly, you know, and this is a days before Googling and I'm back there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I'm asking everybody, oh, what do you think of this? And I'd look up in a book and, you know, just just to get me just enough information that I can walk back into the room and throw some smart sounding words at them. And, you know, and then they leave and I'm like, I, I don't really know if I did the right thing, but it seemed right. And the owners think I'm right. And is that enough? So, yes, I think that it's it's. Um, a combination of, of, of our own making and our profession's making. Well, and I think it's really difficult. And I, and I tell young veterinarians this a lot when, when I've worked with them or they've come into the profession brand new, I'm like, it takes a lot of guts to say, I don't know, mm-hmm. but that's an okay answer. Mm-hmm. Like you can stand in the exam room and tell the client, I don't know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I, I need to do testing and even if you do 10 tests, you still may not know, mm-hmm. but I think that getting the confidence to be able to say that and be okay with it, even though sometimes your head is screaming that you should know is, um, is part of the struggle of this whole imposter syndrome thing. It's, it's our brain telling us that we should know something when may- maybe we shouldn't because we don't yeah. have all the tests done, or maybe it isn't something that we can figure out. And I don't also, I think that there's been in many situations, you know, and I, I was blessed or otherwise, depending on who you ask, with a fair amount of confidence. Um, and I genuinely believe there's been multiple situations in my career where I've said, I don't know, this is really interesting. I'm going to go speak to a colleague. And the client's really excited about, you know, they're getting two vets' opinions for the price of one. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, yes, when you're a recent graduate, it's really hard to say, I'm going to speak to a colleague while still sounding knowledgeable. Um, But you you can really easily frame those I don't knows in a way that is 
this is a great case. I've not seen this one before. Um, I'm really excited and I know that my colleague is going to be really excited about this case too. Would you mind if I went and chatted to somebody else about it? Yeah. And I think when you frame it like that, um, I've never had anybody kind of look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. In fact, I think they feel just a little bit special because their animal has something weird and wonderful. Even if it's not that weird and wonderful in the end, what you decide they don't know that delivery right yeah it's delivering that line with confidence even Mm. when you don't feel confident and that's where the struggle comes in you know that's that's how I define imposter syndrome it's like presenting yourself in a way that isn't congruent with the way your brain is telling you (laughs) you know it's that argument that you're having with yourself and and that's a struggle it's difficult and one of a lovely um, singer songwriter that I quite like, Grace Petrie, she has a, a, a great little um, ditty song called Nobody Knows That I'm a Fraud. And it's, you know, it's fun and it's silly and you get a few giggles, but the sort of culminative line of it is, you know, there's one thing, that I, or there's two things that I'm sure of in this universe is that we could all be doing better, but we could all be doing worse. And everyone, you know, feels like a fraud. Oh, see, that is really, that is a really good line for a song because Mm -hmm. I think that when you're deep in that imposter syndrome, you're, you are thinking that everyone else knows and then Mm -hmm. they don't feel that way. Like you think you're unique and Mm -hmm. some of my coaching clients, I'm like, well, do you think any of us don't feel that way sometimes, you know, even if you've been especially in this career, like things change all the time. You know, I've been doing this a long time and the drugs change and the recommendations change. And when I meet a new vet that has a totally different idea about how to do something, then I Mm -hmm. feel like a fraud because, you know, I used to do it this way. Well, now that's wrong. Now I have to learn a new way, you know? And so it, it is an ongoing um, challenge, I would say. And I think, learning how to reframe it for yourself and learning that it's, it's normal. It's okay to have those feelings sometimes is part of solving it. Well, I think one of the problems with it is that we call it a syndrome. Yes. As if it is abnormal. Like it's a disease. As if it is a pathology. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't like that. My belief is when they called it imposter syndrome in the beginning, it was kind of almost in jest in the fact that you know you feel this way but actually you're you feel like there's something wrong with you but there isn't but I think just because we talk about it as a syndrome it it really kind of seems like you're alone in this but actually the statistics are just you know something like 70 percent particularly 70 percent of women will experience this at some point in their careers and I think that by recognizing that most of your colleagues probably feel the same way, maybe not about the exact same conversation, right? You know, maybe they do know the thing that you're doing right now, but I guarantee at some other point in one of their consults in their day, they also wondered, Oh God, does she already know this stuff? My dog, my own dog went in for x-rays today. He's been, you know, gnawing at his leg for a long time and I've been putting it off. Um, you know, knowing it wasn't going to be anything too serious because it wasn't progressing really rapidly, but, um, you know, so I went in to talk to a vet, a vet that I respect a lot. And, you know, is a really experienced vet and, you know, what did you find? She said, oh, look, he's got an osteochondroma. And I just stared at her like, yep, 
what's that? <laughs> and I was like, you know, and I always use the excuse. I have a nice excuse. Oh, I haven't been in, you know, I haven't been a full-time clinician in many years. So I kind of feel like I have to start distancing myself from the excuse of why I don't know this. And she just sort of turned around and said, oh, I don't know. I had to send it to one of the radiologists too. (laughs) So there was this huge moment that I was like, I feel super awkward in front of this vet that I really respect to say, can you tell me what that is? Yeah. And then she managed to, yeah, but she was just like, oh yeah, I didn't know what it is. I mean, I've heard of it, you know, (laughs) but I didn't know, I didn't recognize it on the X-ray. Yeah. I haven't seen one. Yeah. Exactly. So I think as soon as we kind of go into, oh, everyone else knows what they're talking about mode, just like so much that is unhealthy in our mindsets is because we're making assumptions about what other people know and what other people think. Um, and we're just so often wrong. <laughs> and that there's something wrong with us, right? When we have mm-hmm. those thoughts rather mm-hmm. than just going, oh yeah, I, I've had these thoughts before, but I understand that It's just my brain fighting with me, you know, kind of thing. And I mean, I I know that I'm not, I guess, your average person in that I kind of enjoy the thrill of insecurity a little bit. Explain that to me. Who likes to be insecure? You do. Well, it's not that I enjoy, I don't don't love the feeling of having no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But I do find that once I get to a point in a role where I no long, where I do now, you know, I can just turn up and do it with my eyes closed. I'm really bored. Yeah. And we talked about that on the last podcast that you have a issue with boredom. <laughs> I do. And so the, so one of the ways that I know that it's time for me to find a new project is when I've stopped feeling imposter syndrome. When I'm quite that's confident that I do know what I'm doing every yeah, day that's now. Really, that's an interesting way to put it is when I yeah. quit feeling imposter syndrome, I know it's time for me to push myself further. Exactly. That's and so great I way think to look at it. If you can reframe it in your head as it, it's not a, a pathology just because it's called a syndrome and that actually maybe it's a signal that you're ready for the next step or you're ready for the next challenge. Now, don't get me wrong. There are parts, there are times in my life where I'm quite happy to just turn up and do the easy stuff and things that I'm comfortable and familiar with. But I try not to let those stages of my life go on for too many months. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, something might not be great in my personal life. So maybe I, I am comfortable in a job that's just simple and I can do without feeling insecure. Um, But certainly, you know, if I don't every couple of years or so find myself in a position where I'm going, oh God, do they know I have no idea what I'm doing? Um, You know, then I'm like, well, what did I do? You know, and I was very lucky. I, I was raised by a mother who, um, you know, used to ask me quite regularly, what did you fail at recently? Yeah, that's you know. a great question. Ah, it's the sort of question that I want to ask my kids. I want to normalize that if you didn't do really well at something, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. In fact, that, you know, I can be proud of you for having given a go something that was a bit outside of your league. Yeah. Um, And so I think if you're resilient enough to try again, right? Yeah, exactly. And maybe you didn't succeed at it. And maybe you've decided that thing isn't for you at all. But you went out there and you gave something a shot. You felt uncomfortable and you tried anyway. Um, so I've been really blessed with a personality that, as an adult that I'm kind of like, 
oops, screwed that one up. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> um, but that's really an amazing, that's an amazing point for people out there that are mothers, you know, to allow your children to be okay with the failures as well as the successes. Because not just so be okay with as, them, but embrace them as an opportunity, as a well done you. I'm proud of you for trying something that was uncomfortable. Get your kids comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And then these feelings like imposter syndrome will be something that helps them to thrive, not to shrink. Um, I I think there's a lot in that. So do you have a piece of advice and, and I'll try to come up with something as well for somebody that feels really stuck in this feeling of imposter syndrome and they're having a hard time getting out of it, how would you recommend that they push forward in spite of that feeling? Look, I think, you know, there's some really easy, simple, objective things to do, like actually ask for objective feedback. Um, You know, talk to your supervisor, talk to your colleagues, actually ask them, you know, how am I at these things? How would you rate me against my colleagues at these things? Make sure you are giving performance reviews as part of your job. Make sure your employer is doing the right thing by you by giving you real-time objective feedback. And then see if you can actually measure that against your self-assessment and see how you do. Because if you walk into a performance review where you've been asked to self-assess and you're consistently rating yourself lower than your manager is, you know objectively you are missing the mark on your perception of yourself. So I think there's some really easy things that you can do just by speaking to your employer about it. Um, But I think when it comes to mindset and actually helping yourself grow and helping yourself be okay with that, for me, there's two big things, and that's talk to your colleagues about it. Recognize that they probably have very similar feelings and that it is normal. Um, but then be, and I know this, you know, I'm blessed that this is a bit easier for me than a lot of people, but try to enjoy the feeling, you know, try to embrace it as your brain going, this is a new challenge. This is, you know, something that is helping me grow. And if I didn't feel this way, would that be an indication that maybe actually I'm allowing myself to become a little bit stagnant? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that is so true. The other thing I would add to that is um, kind of push your ta- yourself to take an action towards that scary thing, because sometimes it's hard to overcome the feeling by thinking yourself out of it. And, you know, mm-hmm. because that feeling becomes so strong because your brain is so fixated on it. But if mm-hmm. you can take one small step in the direction of that fear, whatever it is, if it's a case or surgery, or, you know, when I started writing, I was, I had this huge story in my head that I was a terrible writer, but I really wanted to do it. And so I really had to struggle with myself, you know, of being an imposter as an author and writing articles. And so the way I had to get over it was to just start writing and being Mm -hmm. okay, whether it sucked or not, you know, like if it's really (laughs) terrible and I put it out there, I just have to be okay with that because the only way I'm going to do it is to do it. And then you get better and it gets easier, right? The more I write, the easier it gets. So if you can overcome yourself for just a second to take one small action, I think sometimes that helps because then it gets a little easier each time, like you said, to overcome that 
that fear of failure? Yeah, baby steps is there's a lot to be said for baby steps. And I think um, because we are such perfectionists and because we are naturally, we want to do an excellent job, we feel like a baby step towards something is a failure as opposed to all progress is progress. Um, And so if, if you didn't get it perfect, but you did it, that is enough. Um, And I think being able to kind of make sure that, you know, that doing an okay job is still an okay job. (laughs) I I heard it once um, from, from a coach um, to do B minus work. Like it's okay to do B minus work because the B minus work is better than no work. Like if you, if you put it out there and it's B minus, then that's better than not ever doing it or trying it. Yeah. And I, so my best friend from university, you know, from vet school days, we met in vet school. We were great friends throughout and we had, we always received almost exactly the same marks in pretty much everything we did. And the really interesting part about it was that we had completely different ways of studying and we would both walk into an exam and scare the bejesus out of each other because none of us knew the same things as each other. And I would walk into an exam having studied all of the material at a very superficial level. And she will have studied every single nuance of all of the details but only made it halfway through the material. Oh, okay. That's and as it turns out, we both were, I don't know what the equivalent over there is, but probably B minus. We were kind of B students. We yeah. were fine. We were not at the top of the class, but we were not at the bottom of the class. And I think that that was a really nice illustration for me that neither of those things is a failure. Um, and that, having a different way to go about it. We still both did well. Um, We still both got a veterinary degree. You know, she's an excellent vet. I have gone on to do other really exciting things. Um, And neither of us were A-plus students. And that didn't matter. No, because (laughs) people don't ask you that, right? They don't ask you what you're doing. And and if if you're passionate and you really care about doing the right thing, whether it always comes out perfectly or not, I think that the intent behind it and the effort behind it is more important than, um, you know, you getting it right every single time or getting it right in the moment, you know, like if Mm. it takes, if it takes me an hour to figure out a case or look up things or call other veterinarians and try to figure something out. And my colleague who, and this is real life for me, I worked with a woman, um, who's about my same age, but man, she's a genius. Like she remembers everything. She's got articles. Like she just like, she's into the zebras, you know, like I can't remember any of the zebras. I'm, I'm like, it's just an ear infection or a urinary tract <laughs> infection, you know, like I'm down the middle and b- working with her, it, it, neither one of us, we were, we were very good at what we did, but together we were amazing because when she got way out there in the stratosphere, I could just pull her back in and be like, no, this is just a run of the mill gastritis. Mm-hmm. It's not some, you know, atypical <laughs> Addison's that was her favorite disease, atypical Addison's. <laughs> so yeah. just, you know, not feeling like an imposter around her because she's so much, her brain works so much differently than mine, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm more logical and down to earth and, you know, and, and I'm good with the people and, so mm-hmm. it's just admiring yourself for who you are and, and using yep. the tools that 
that uh, you were given to do this job, you know? And I, th- I think there is a lot in there about admiring the, the strengths that you bring as well. But I also think that, you know, if you step outside yourself and look at from the client's perspective, and we're always so worried about the clients judging us. Now, how many of us have been in a situation where we actually have done a perfect job and we are like, I am rocking. Look at my Nailed surgery. It. I kicked that ass and I'm so proud of myself and then the client complains because stitches are a bit crooked or you know the bills $50 and so you can do a perfect job and it not be what they wanted whereas I remember one of my favorite cases of all time when I was practicing full time um I saw this greyhound lovely greyhound um elderly owner I couldn't work out what was wrong with this dog. It was inappetent. You know, it kind of had shifting lameness. It had all of these weird sort of things. And she came back once a week or so, you know, on her pension. And I tried another test and another test. And eventually I decided that it was a hyperparathyroid issue. Um, And so I went to get bloods. And I don't, in America, I'm sure you have a lot better facilities. But in the UK at the time, there was only one lab that did it. And you had to take the blood at the exact right time so that it went that day to be tested that day. But you needed to get like eight mils of, of serum. Wow. That's and so, <laughs> yeah. And so I did, was running these bloods and I was like, and then I had to make the lady come back because, of course, it was a greyhound. So I thought I had enough for eight mils of serum and I didn't because <laughs> cell volume. And then I she'd been in for like the eighth time I'd taken more blood I spun it down I had eight mils I was really impressed I was gonna do the thing and then I dropped a vial on the floor and smashed it oh no (laughs) and I was like nearly in tears when I phoned this owner to say I'm so sorry I'm back again come back I'm so like I have nothing I have no excuses I I just I'm a failure as a vet basically and she bought me flowers she was like, oh, you must be having a terrible week. And she just thought I was the best. And when I left that, you know, I was only a locum that, that place for three months. And when I left, she was really sad to see me go. It took me like two months to diagnose her dog with the thing that it had. Yeah. And, you know, hundreds of her dollars and a lot of round traps. And she still thought I was the best thing since sliced bread because I treated her like a human being. Yeah. So I think we can focus really hard on being perfect and still get it wrong from the owner's perspective. And sometimes we can just be human beings and that is fine. And accept it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the more we focus. That perfect. Yeah. And a lot of people know that. And a lot of people are fine with that. And the people that expect too much of us, frankly, they just need to be educated that we're humans too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think we forget that. And we forget the volumes of people that that like this woman that love us and accept us mm-hmm. as the savior because they can't do what we do, even if it's something mm-hmm. simple like squeeze out anal glands or, you know, mm-hmm. fix it ear infection or if it's something super simple, they can't do it. Yeah. Like they literally can't. And to us, it seems so mundane and so easy. And, um, you know, so we forget that most of our clients are super appreciative. 
But it's not those people who post on social media, of course. Right. Well, that kind of, this is a good segue for us, right? Because we also talked about how do we deal with these clients right now? And so in the U.S. where I am, um, since the pandemic, and I think it, it was starting before the pandemic, there is kind of a shortage of veterinarians. There's a shortage of technicians um, that the hospitals keep reproducing. We get more and more veterinary hospitals, but I don't think we're graduating enough people out of school or we have some attrition where veterinarians are leaving. And then since the pandemic, we have this huge number of pets that people are adopting. It, like the shelters are almost empty. It's crazy. So the demand has gone from here to here. And so, and then clients are being really impatient and ugly at times. So mm. we kind of talked about this, um, you know, this would be a good subject for us maybe to discuss and offer some tools to people on how to manage this, these clients' expectations and the social media blowback when mm. their expectations aren't met. Is that mm -hmm. happening where you are too? A hundred percent. We are in the exact same position. We 30% of the Australian veterinary workforce has historically been not Australian workforce. Um, oh, so, so yeah, the, the travel stuff too. Yeah. So we often have people on working holiday visas or sort of two year kind of um, special skills visas coming in from Ireland or Canada or, you know, lots of different countries to come and do a couple of years working in, you know, the, the fantastic place that Australia is. <laughs> I um, want to come so badly. I'm going to come visit you. Well, not going to lie, during COVID times, you wouldn't want to be <laughs> anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so that's all gone now. And so we were already, you know, too much demand for, for our capability. And now that we can't get people into the country to help and we, you know, this, as you say, this sort of COVID phenomenon of everybody adopting a puppy, <laughs> we're, we're absolutely sorted. The clinics, I don't know a single private practice veterinarian who isn't near burnout and, you know, really, really considering, you know, their options from here. And it's just, it, it's, it can't go on. It's not sustainable. We have I, to find I solutions. I say at my practice all the time, I'm like, this, this workload is not sustainable for people. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate no. that I don't work every day. Like I'm, I'm not at my hospital full time. I'm only there um, two or three days a week, but those are long, hard days when I'm there. Like I'm really moving. And yeah. Most of them are appreciative, but some of them are, are downright nasty right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know that clients are getting nastier as opposed to just a statistically, there's just more of them coming through the door. Yeah, that's true. So you're more <laughs> likely to get a jerk, right? <laughs> yeah. Statistically there's, there's jerks out there and a lot more of them are walking through our doors at the moment. But I also think that there's a lot to be said for people both in our profession, but also the general public have this really unusual underlying anxiety happening that's sort of unprecedented in that, you know, COVID and the economy and stress and health and all of these things have so many people just having this kind of little subconscious niggle always sitting in their chest which makes them just that little bit less able to 
you know, offer compassion because they're, they're pouring from an empty cup. And so maybe when something frustrates them that maybe pre-COVID might have not been a big deal, I think a lot of people are struggling right now. Yeah. And even those that aren't financially struggling or, you know, haven't had somebody got, got sick from COVID, um, that that underlying anxiety is there for almost everybody at the moment. It's not not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So they're reacting from their own feelings mm-hmm. of overwhelm and frustration and whatever they're and going lack through. of understanding. Their kids are home, you know. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't I keep I keep trying to remind myself of that and remind my team that you know I always. I always go back to something that um, John Maxwell says is hurting people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And if you can remember when people are trying to hurt you, that it's more about them than it is about you. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that helps you separate yourself from the vitriol or whatever they're, they're throwing your way. And one of my favorite, I I totally agree. I I think that, you know, particularly when something's not gone well for their pet. Um, and so they've got grief or they've got, you know, guilt. Um, people, you know, I, I, I've often said, and this is a really common thing that I share within shelters, is that if people can pass their guilt onto you, they feel that they've washed their hands of it. So if somebody knows subconsciously that they've done the wrong thing by their pet, whether that's they should have bought it in a week ago or they are trying to surrender it or, you know, they haven't provided it with the care or they've fed it too much or any of those things that subconsciously they're feeling bad about, there is a huge human defence mechanism that is, if I can make this your fault, it wasn't my fault. And then I can feel better. And so what I have always said to my staff is that you need to recognize they're trying to give you their guilt. Mm, I like and it that is, um, yeah. And, and I've always said it's okay for them to give it away, but you can't take it. It's not your guilt. Good. And we have a tendency to do so because we want to help and we wanted that animal to not suffer and we wanted all of those things, but that is their guilt. And if you can take it on, then they're relieved of it. But now you have to feel that from 5, 10, 20 clients a day. And that is not a sustainable level of guilt to be taking home to your children. And um, so, yeah, people are trying to give you their guilt. And you, you need to make sure it stays in the consult room. They can get it out if they need to. And you can smile and nod and say, I'm so sorry that you're feeling that way but it's not yours to pick up off the table. Oh, I I love that visual. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of them taking their guilt and trying to hand it to me and Mm -hmm. then be like backing away and just letting Mm -hmm. them set it on the exam room table. Yeah. Have you ever done that sort of, you know, joke where you just sort of have holding a piece of rubbish or something and you just go to hand it to your friend, just, you know, just to see if they'll take your rubbish off you. Yeah, it's pretty much that. Yeah. Is that they're just casually handing it off and hoping that you will grab it because then it's not theirs anymore. Oh, I love yeah. that. That is a yeah. really good tool for someone to use. I'm very visual, so to me that if if you can picture that in your mind of somebody trying to hand you their guilt or, you mm-hmm. know, all their other emotions, their anger, their grief, their, their anger, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what's happening with us now and I experienced it um couple days ago, because I was working, 
their frustration at having to wait Mm. or their frustration at, I don't know why clients do this, but they make an appointment at 11 and then they schedule, you know, their kid has a soccer game at 1130 on a Saturday (laughs) and they expect that they're going to pull into the veterinary hospital and do everything they need to do in 15 or 20 minutes and then get back in the car and leave. Well, we know that's not realistic. You can't do a whole veterinary appointment in, you know, 10 minutes. And you also know that there's 10 people ahead of them. So they're going to wait a little bit, but then they get frustrated and then they're, you know, well, why is it taking so long and what's going on and how come you can't work faster? And, you know, and, and we take all that on all that stress Mm -hmm. that's coming off of them. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessary to do so. If we can just be like, gotta wait, if you don't want to wait there's the door. There's other clinics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, because nobody, I don't, I don't know what the medical system is like there, but we have a pretty good medical system here, but you don't go to the doctor and not expect to wait half an hour. Right. It's yeah. just normal. You yeah. will be waiting and yeah. you do not make plans after your doctor's appointment. Like nobody does. At least a couple that... hours, you know, I give myself yeah. two hours when I'm going to any yeah. appointment. You know, any, even a hair appointment, sometimes they don't run on time or, you know, you're going to a store to buy something. You don't know how long you're going to have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and I I think, you know, as you said, that kind of, okay, sorry, you're frustrated. Kind of, kind of not because the way I look at it is they want you to hurry Mm -hmm. doing everyone else, but then spend the right amount of time for their appointment. And so I just turn around and say, when you come into my room, I will give you my full attention, but therefore I need to do the same for the people in front of you in the line. And, you know, I think that that's reasonable. Now, I've also worked at charity clinics where, you know, it is a production line. They're not paying the bill and you do get them in and get them out. And it is just, if your appointment took two minutes because it was a vaccine and yours took half an hour because it was euthanasia, that's how life is. Um, And so, you know, there are different scenarios, but in your general standard private practice, you're paying the same fee for my time. I'm not going to jip them of their time to spend more time with you. That's not fair. That's not how the world works. Um, and I actually have a, a moderately strong um, aversion to greasing the squeaky wheel, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Thank you so much for listening to Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones and my conversation. It went so long that I decided to split it into two podcasts so it wouldn't go an hour and a half. So I have cut our conversation here. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope this is not frustrating to you. But the second half of our conversation will be next week's podcast. So if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave me a review. If you are interested in coaching with me, I have an offer of free coaching on my website, juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com. Please reach out to me. If you want to send me an email, it's jacapeldvm at gmail.com. I thank you so much for listening today. I love all of you and I hope you have a beautiful week. And next week, I'll be back with my other half of the conversation, 
with Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones.